he's been on the History Channel. He's been on MSNBC, on Fox, the Glenn Beck Show, CNN. Imagine that. Wow. <laughs> and he's still saved. Hallelujah. Well, I think the, the most important thing to know about Mark is, is that uh, he loves the Lord. His name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he knows his Bible. So will you welcome Dr. Mark here and his wife Cheryl there? Have fun, brother. If you want to throw something even worse in there about me, I was a lawyer for four years, too, before I went to seminary. So uh, I uh, repented of that and went to seminary, served the Lord. Now, now if there's any lawyers here, I appreciate that. My, my oldest son's in law school now, so it's an, uh, certainly an honorable profession. But it's great to be here tonight. Gosh, I'm, I'm shocked so many, of you, so many folks are here tonight on a Sunday night. I really do appreciate you all coming back. That uh, means a lot to me to see uh, so many people who are willing to come out on a Sunday night to study God's Word together. So I really do appreciate it very much. It means a lot to me. It's very encouraging to my wife and to me. And this is my wife, Cheryl. Uh, she's been traveling with me. Um, it's good. Um, we were... Well, we got married uh, 26 years ago last week, and we, we came on our honeymoon to San Francisco. So this was the 26th anniversary that we had, and we were there on uh, the day we got married and all that. So it was really exciting. But in, uh, it's, it's great to come to San Francisco in the summer when, when you're from Oklahoma. It's so hot there. Last July in Oklahoma was the hottest month ever recorded in the United States. It was the mean temperature was 89.5 degrees, and that's night, day. We had day after day of 108, 110, 112, and not cooling off at night. They say it was so hot in Oklahoma, the cows were given evaporated milk. I mean, it was bad. <laughs> it was really hot. So anyway, it's always good to be here. We'll go back to that now, and hopefully this summer won't be as bad as the last. But I've uh, got one of these little top 10 lists I thought I'd start off with this evening. It's the top 10 ways to know if you're obsessed with prophecy. You kind of give yourself this test. Number uh, 10, you use the left behind books as devotional reading. Uh, number nine, you get goosebumps when you hear a trumpet. Number, uh, number eight, you believe the term church fathers refers to Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye. Number seven, you believe there's an original Greek and Hebrew text with Schofield's notes. Uh, number six, you can name more signs of the times than you can commandments. Number five, you refuse a tax refund check because the amount comes to $666. <laughs> number four, barcode scanners make you nervous. Uh, number three, you talk your church into adapting the 60s pop song, Up, Up, and Away, as a Christian hymn. And I love this one, you never buy green bananas. Obviously, you know, Jesus could come at any time, right? So you don't buy those. Green bananas. The number one way to know if you're obsessed with Bible prophecy is you always leave the top down on your convertible in case the rapture happens. So. But you know, when you teach on prophecy like I do a bit, and I'm the pastor of a church, and at our church we just go through and study books of the Bible. Uh, we're in the book of James right now. So at our church, you know, with the people, the God's sheep need a good, well-rounded diet, and so you don't want to make prophecy a focus, but it's a focus for me. It's an area of expertise uh, that I've tried to develop over the years. And I like to tell people I'm not obsessed with Bible prophecy, but I love to study it. And uh, the reason I love Bible prophecy is because I love the Bible. 27% uh, of the Bible was prophecy at the time it was given. So to me, if you love the Bible, you love prophecy. I mean, the Bible is a book of prophecy. 
And it tells us where this world is headed, and it shines the headlights out in the darkness um, of the future. I like what Romans 13 says. It says, the night is almost over. The day is at hand. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And this world today is filled with all kinds of fear and uncertainty about the future. There's just increasing uncertainty. You just feel it in our culture and really in the world today. And people have this collective sense, I think, that the world is getting near closing time. In fact, a Newsmax poll about a year ago found that 20% of the people in America believe the world is going to end in the next couple of decades. That's not Christians. Just one out of five people believe the world's going to end in the next couple of decades because of all the things that are happening. You've got all the uh, economic news. You've got natural disasters, terrorism, uh, nuclear weapons, you know, fear of them falling in the wrong hands, pandemic plagues. In fact, uh, when the swine flu was going around a couple years ago, I saw a headline in a major magazine. I thought it was pretty catchy. It said, Apocalypse Now. You know, so I many people, this idea of, of just, uh, you know, it's the end's coming. But there's all kinds of movies out there, you know, about this post-apocalyptic age, the, the book, the, the movie, The Road. Um, this whole 2012 furor, you know, the world's going to end. You know, the Mayan calendar ends in December of this year. Uh, movies like Contagion, The Book of Eli. I mean, on and on you can go. It just seems to be a part of our popular culture. And people are looking today for answers like never before. Uh, people are looking for answers. And we know that the only place you can find solid answers is in the Word of God. It's the only place we can find answers about the future. Heard about a man who went to visit his psychic, and he goes to the psychic's office, and there's a sign on the door that says, closed due to unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> I like that, you know. But the, the beauty of the Word of God and the God we believe in is there are no unforeseen circumstances with God. Uh, the Trinity never meets an emergency session. There's never any panic in heaven. Uh, God knows the end from the beginning. And uh, Dr. John Walbert, who was president for many years at Dallas Seminary, and I, I got to know Dr. Walbert. It's a great privilege to be around uh, Dr. Walbert. In fact, uh, this, next, this coming December, he will have been dead 10 years. It's hard to believe. He was 92 years of age. Uh, but he wrote a book uh, called All the Prophecies of the Bible. And in that book, he has a, about 1,000 prophecies, and 500 of them have already been fulfilled, and there are 500 that are yet to be fulfilled. I mean, that is quite a track record that God uh, has established. We can put the Bible to the test. And God has set forth in his, the Scriptures kind of a template for us of end-time events, and God wants us to understand that template of events. We're not going to understand every detail about the future, but to know and discern the times in which we live. Now, when it comes to signs of the times, and you all are probably familiar with that phrase, there's two extremes you can go to. One of the extremes that many people engage in today is to just totally discount the idea of any signs of the times. They would say, you know, you shouldn't worry about signs of the times or when Jesus is coming back. Just live for him every day and don't worry about it. Well, there's some truth to the fact that we just live for the Lord every day. But remember when the disciples came to Jesus in Matthew 24 on the Mount of Olives, and they said, when will these things be? That is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And then they said, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus didn't say, don't worry about it. What did he do in Matthew 24? He gives a whole chapter there, in fact, two whole chapters, where he lays out in chapter 24 at least all these different signs of the times. Now, the other extreme, though, is to, to engage in unbiblical speculation, date setting, 
Um, I always say when anybody sets a date for the Lord's coming, you can be sure that's the date it's not going to happen. I mean, you're just, God's not going to come back on some date that some crackpot uh, sets for the coming of the Lord. So that's the other extreme. And I have people all the time send me stuff where, you know, they figured out who the Antichrist is and, you know, they figured out the day that the Lord's coming back and all kinds of stuff like that. And that we don't want to engage in that kind of speculation. But remember what Jesus said back in, in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus said this about signs. And these were, this was in his own day. It says he answered the, the Pharisees and Sadducees when they said, show us a sign from heaven. And he said to them, when it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there'll be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? In other words, Jesus was there fulfilling the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. In fact, in his earthly life, Jesus fulfilled about 109 prophecies. Um, one man I, I've read that I respect very much says that Jesus fulfilled 33 prophecies in the last 24 hours of his life on earth. So Jesus was there fulfilling these prophecies, and he said, look, you can't discern the signs of the times. I'm here. I'm, I'm the Messiah. Now, the same Jesus also told us that there's going to be signs for the future. Over in, uh, in Luke chapter 21, in Luke chapter uh, 21 and verse 27. In Luke chapter 21 and verse uh, 25, I'm sorry. It says, Then there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth dismay among the nations with perplexity. So there were signs of the first coming of Christ. And Jesus says there will be signs of His second coming. And we just, I just mentioned a moment ago, Matthew 24, where Jesus lays out all these signs of His second coming. And I love those verses. A lot of people miss this. But remember in, in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the writer of the Hebrews there says uh, that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But he says, encourage one another. And he says, do it all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if we can't see the day drawing near, then how can we do it all the more if we see the day drawing near? I mean, the only way you can do it all the more when you see the day drawing near is if we can see that day drawing near. And by the way, that's, that's a, a powerful text, and you all are obeying it here tonight. And it says, if you see all these things, be encouraging one another, and don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. What God is saying is, look, if you believe the Lord's coming soon, the last thing you want to do is get isolated. Be off by yourself where the enemy can pick you off. And it's tragic today. There's kind of a low view of the church that's, that's evolving in our culture. We're just kind of this optional thing, and people don't go very often. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here tonight because here you all are on a Sunday night. But I think that's a very important thing for all of us to remember, not to get isolated. Now, there are a lot of signs of the times, and I want to mention a few of these and then focus on kind of one main one tonight. And then at the end, I want to leave some time for uh, some questions and answers tonight. So you might be thinking as I'm going along of a, a question you have about something I talk about tonight or maybe something else related uh, to the end times. But one other thing, just kind of as an upfront, and then we'll get right into the, to, to these signs of the times. But one of the things that's very important to remember is signs of the times, at least the view I hold, is that the signs of the times are for the second coming of Jesus, not the rapture. 
I, I see a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. Now, there's only one coming of the Lord, but it's going to happen in two phases. At the rapture, He's going to come for His saints. And at the second coming, He's going to come with His saints as we come back to the earth. But the signs of the times are for the second coming. They're not for the rapture. But now here's the thing. If we can already see the signs of the second coming and the rapture hasn't ha happened yet, then what does that tell us about the rapture? Could be really soon. And Dr. Walbert used to have a great illustration about this, that, you know, whenever uh, uh, Christmas and, and that time of year comes around, you know, they start decorating now the malls, I think, in September, you know, for Christmas. I mean, it gets you playing the music and all that gets you in the mood to buy stuff. But there's all kinds of signs for Christmas. I mean, if you live in this country, there's no mistake Christmas is coming. All kinds of signs for it. But there really aren't any signs much for Thanksgiving. And Dr. Walvoord used to liken the second coming to Christmas and the rapture to Thanksgiving. And he would say, if you can already see the signs of Christmas, but yet Thanksgiving hasn't arrived yet, then you can know that Thanksgiving is pretty close. And to me, that's a great way to look at signs of the times. So the rapture is an event that can happen at any moment. It's a signless event. It's an imminent event that can occur at any time. Now, I want to just mention a few signs and talk about some things. I'll put a, a chart up here in a moment. Every good uh, prophecy teacher has to have a chart. So I'll have that up there and kind of go walk through some things. But when we look at where we are today, we'll see this in a chart in a moment, but we're in the, in the church age today. We're in the time today of what I would call preparation for the fulfillment of prophecy. The stage is being set. <clears throat> Excuse me. The stage is being set. And one of these days, the rapture is going to take place and is going to end this church age. The church age will be over. And at that point in time, then prophecies will begin to be fulfilled. But we live in the time today when the stage is being set. And we see a lot of things happening in our world. And I just want to mention a few of these and then focus in on the nation of Israel. But one of the things we see in our world today is the rise of globalism. The Bible predicts in Revelation 13 that uh, this man called the beast there, he's called the Antichrist, uh, the man of lawlessness, uh, the little horn back in Daniel, a lot of synonyms. But this person is going to come onto the world scene and is going to dominate the world with a world economic, religious, and political system. Well, you look at our world today, and this world today could be dominated economically by one person. In fact, the world is shrinking. I mean, think about Greece. I mean, that tiny little country over there with an economy. I'm sure it's not even near the economy of the state of California. And yet, it could bring the whole world down. And Spain and, and Italy and Portugal and some of these other countries. The world has, has shrunk. And you remember uh, back after the flood, all the, the people were gathered at the Tower of Babel. And Satan had everybody together. And he had them all under the control of one person, a man named Nimrod. And you remember God came and scattered people all over the face of the earth and confounded their languages. And Satan is the master globalist. And he's been trying to get everybody back together again. He's been working through the ages inexorably to bring the world back together again under one person again. And where were they gathered with Nimrod? At Babel. When you go to Revelation 17 and 18, what's this great city called that Antichrist rules from? It's Babylon. So the world's headed back full circle where it came from. Another sign of the times, and this is one I don't like to talk about, but I see the, the, the decline of the United States as a sign of the times. 
Because the Bible tells us that world power is going to be centered in a reunited Roman Empire under this person, again, called the Beast or the Antichrist. And if world power is going to be centered in that person from a reunited Roman Empire, and it says in Revelation 13, 4, you know, who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? Well, if he's running everything, that means the United States isn't. And I think if the United States were the great economic uh, power, I, I say that, we're 16.5 trillion in debt today. We still, I guess, are the dominant uh, economic power in the world, though China, I'm sure, is alone with all the money they're loaning us. Could, you could make an argument there. But we're the, we're the greatest uh, political power. We're the greatest military power. And if we were that kind of a great power in the end times, I think we would be mentioned somewhere in Scripture. But I don't find America in prophecy. We're not, certainly the words United States or America never appear. And I don't think America is Babylon the Great in Revelation 17 and 18. Uh, we're not the 10 lost tribes of Israel because the 10 tribes aren't lost. God knows where they are. Um, we're not, uh, you know, the unnamed nation in Isaiah 18 or any of these places. I don't see America mentioned. And I think that means something happens to this country. Now you say, well, what's going to happen? Well, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but... There are plausible scenarios. Again, you look at our debt crisis we have. Um, could be that there's going to be a nuclear 9-11 in our country. Uh, we don't know what will happen. But I would say this, when the rapture takes place, about 8% of the people in America, according to Barna's research, believe that, that someone is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. Now, if that's anywhere close to true, that's about 30 million people that disappear in a moment in the twinkling of an eye when the rapture takes place. And it's the salt and the light that's immediately extracted out of this country. Now, you talk about a drop on the Dow Jones the next day, or you talk about a, you know, a mortgage crisis, um, America would be second rate overnight. And it could be that the rapture happens in fatal combination with some of these other things as well that take place. So America could easily become a second-rate power and would have to join in with uh, the empire of the Antichrist. Well, there's a lot of other signs we could mention, but the number one sign, I take it at the end times, and you all know this, the super sign is the nation of Israel, the regathering of the Jewish people to their land. It's, it's an event that's prophesied really as much as any event uh, in the Old Testament. Um, Ezekiel chapter 37 pictures the, the nation coming back like dry bones coming back uh, together again. It pictures them being regathered physically to the land and then ultimately being regathered spiritually uh, to the Lord. But the nation of Israel has come back to their land. And that's one of the great miracles in all of history. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me, you think about the Jewish people, uh, Satan has tried to wipe them out throughout their entire history. To me, one of the greatest apologetics for the truth of the Bible is the Jewish people. They won't go away. I mean, you can't get rid of them. There's never been another group of people exiled from their, their country, completely exiled, who've ever remained a distinct people. The Jews have been exiled numerous times. The last time they were exiled, you know, in, in 70 AD and a little bit later after that, they were exiled for, to 70 different countries for a period of almost 1,900 years. And yet they remained distinct. God, their language had died out. And God brought them back to the land. And in 1948, on May the 14th, the modern uh, state of Israel uh, was founded. And 
all these efforts to wipe out the Jewish people, it's a satanic, satanically energized, empowered plot because Satan knew originally that the Messiah was going to come from the Jews. So he tried to cut, cut off the Jews so Messiah couldn't come. And now Messiah has come. He's trying to wipe out the Jewish people because God has promised Messiah is going to come back and rule over the Jewish people in Jerusalem and give them the land that he promised. So he's trying to thwart uh, the promises of God. But Israel is back in their land. And of course, when they got there to their land, they immediately were attacked in 1948 by five Arab countries. Uh, they had a war in 1956, a war in 1967, a war in 1973, uh, the Lebanon War in 1982. They fought Hezbollah for 34 days in the summer of 2006. I mean, time and time again, uh, they've been attacked and they've been fought against. But they've always come out uh, successful. There's a story I heard about a, uh, a group of Arabs that were wandering around and they heard a voice down over a hill said, one Jew can whip 25 Arabs. Well, they were really upset and send 25 men over the hill and there's some noise and all of a sudden it's silent. Well, they hear a voice that says, one Jew can whip 50 Arabs. And they get really upset and send 50 guys over and they hear some commotion, it's dead quiet. Then they hear a voice that says, one Jew can whip 100 Arabs. So they send 100 men over the hill and all this shooting and commotion. And finally, this one poor Arab guy comes running up over the hill. His clothes are all tattered and all. And he says, go back, go back. He says, it's a trap. There's two of them. <laughs> now, that's the way it's been for the Jewish people in their history. They have, uh, they've enjoyed unparalleled military uh, success. But when you read the Bible, though, the greatest challenge for the Jewish people is still ahead. The greatest challenge is still ahead for them. Turn over to Ezekiel 38 and 39. I want to look at this passage for a moment and talk a bit about what this says about the future for Israel. Because, you know, right now with Israel, you've got Egypt down to the south of Israel that has a peace treaty. They're the only, them and Jordan are the only Arab countries with peace treaties with Israel. But uh, down in Egypt right now, the Muslim Brotherhood has uh, taken the parliament. And uh, they're probably going to take the presidency in the upcoming elections. And the majority of people in Egypt want to get rid of the Camp David Accords. And so uh, Israel's whole southern flank could be reopened again. You've got Syria to the north of Israel with all the chaos there. And if the Assad government falls and ra more radicals come in, all of the arms that Syria has, whose hands are those going to fall into? I mean, it's a, Israel right now is at a precarious time. And then over to the east, they've got Iran who's threatened to wipe them off the face of the earth and who's doing everything they can right now to cross the nuclear finish line. So they're in a, in a more difficult spot than they've ever been in before. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 is another one of these events that's going to happen in the future that we can see today the stage being set uh, for this war. Look at Ezekiel 38 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, and notice this here, thus says the Lord God. Seven times in these two chapters you have that statement. We dare not read over that because what we're reading here is the very word of God himself. I love what Charles Hodge used to say. He says, the Bible is the word of God to such an extent that what the Bible says, God says. So what we're reading here, this is the very word of God himself. 
Behold, I am against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I'll bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia, Ethiopia, Put, with them, all of them with shield and helmet. By the way, I'm reading from the New American Standard. I know a minute ago most of you were reading from the NIV, so it's a little different. Hopefully it's close enough. A Gomer with all its troops, Beth Togarma from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Be prepared, prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that's restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. Now, this chapter obviously follows chapter 37, which tells us that the Jewish people are going to be regathered to their land in the end times. It's that great dry bones prophecy where they're regathered. And what you see in Ezekiel 37 is a two-stage regathering. First of all, they're regathered physically to the land, and then God ultimately comes and breathes life into them, and they're gathered spiritually to the Lord. They're going to be converted in mass to the Lord. But this invasion will occur uh, when they've been regathered physically uh, to their land. Just a little bit about the book of Ezekiel. I know sometimes we open up these Old Testament books. Let me just give you a little overview. In the book of Ezekiel, the first 24 chapters are judgment on Judah, on the, on the nation of Judah, the two southern tribes. And chapters 25 to 32 is judgment on the near enemies of Israel. And then beginning in chapter 33 to the end of the book, it's the regathering and the restoration of the Jews. And chapter 33 is the turning point where Ezekiel is recommissioned by God. The city of Jerusalem, he gets news, it's been destroyed by the Babylonians. And now, since Jerusalem's been destroyed, God recommissions Ezekiel, but now with a message of hope for the Jewish people. A message of restoration for the future. And I love that. I mean, God lambasts them with the judgment in the first 24 chapters. But once they've been destroyed and the judgment has fallen, then God begins to give them hope for the future. Now, the first thing we see in chapter 38 is the nations that are going to participate in this invasion. And there's 10 proper names there. And the word Gog, I take it, is the leader of this invasion because he's Gog of the land of Magog. And God refers to Gog several times. And so it seems that he's a person. Now, I don't think his name's necessarily going to literally be Gog, but Gog means high or exalted. So it's probably like a title, you know, he's given. He's just high, exalted. That's the way he views himself. But all the rest of these names here are names of ancient places that existed in Ezekiel's day that he says are going to invade Israel in the latter years. So our job is to go back and say, okay, where were these places in 570 B.C.? And what nations are there today? The names of the nations may change many times, but it's where they were at that point uh, in time. By the way, something that's interesting here, Gog and Magog, these two of the names mentioned here, those words appear two times in the Quran. They're called Yajuj and Majuj. 
And Yajuj and Majuj, it, the story is completely changed in the Quran, though. It's the Arabs, the Muslims that are being uh, rescued by Jesus, not the Jewish people. It's kind of like a lot of things in the Quran. It's, it's turned around and it's changed. One other thing I think is important here, I think it that Gog here, who's the leader of this invasion, is not the same person as the Antichrist. A lot of people are teaching that today. A lot of people are teaching that uh, the Antichrist is going to be Islamic. Uh, there's, uh, in fact, a guy named Joel Richardson's written a book called The Islamic Antichrist. He's got a new book he's written. He just sent it to me the other day. Uh, we've kind of, we've talked back and forth about this, but I don't take it that Gog is the same as the Antichrist, and I don't take it the Antichrist will be a Muslim. And there's a real simple reason why. Back in Daniel 11, it says about the Antichrist that he is not going to worship, he's not going to worship the God of Israel. He's not going to worship the God of his fathers. But it says that he'll worship a God of fortresses. And it says there that he's going to declare that he himself is God. And if you go to uh, Thessalonians, uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, it says this Antichrist is going to sit in the temple of God and declare that he is God. Now, if you're a Muslim and you declare that you're God, you can't be a Muslim anymore, right? I mean, the, the main tenet of Islam is there is one God who is Allah, and so no one who is Islamic could ever claim to be God. And if someone ever did claim to be God, no Muslim would follow them. It violates the first tenet of their religion. So I don't think the Antichrist is going to be Islamic, and I don't think he's the same as this leader here of this Islamic invasion of Israel. Uh, the Antichrist is going to lead the Western Confederacy, whereas Gog here is going to lead uh, these Islamic nations and Russia uh, down into uh, the land of Israel. If you'll put that slide up there that's the map of, uh, of all the, the nations. Um, first slide. Where will, that, where will that come up? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a map that's, kinda, that's got all the, the uh, surrounding nations there around Israel on it. And uh, help us to see where those are. There we go. Um, with, with Ezekiel 38 and 39, I call this the final jihad. And rather than going through and talk about this in just great detail, I think I'm, uh, hopefully this picture will speak a, a thousand words for us. But the, the, the nations that are mentioned here, one of them you notice is Put. And Put was, it's actually the map, ran out of room on the map, should be a little further to the left. It's where modern day Libya is. That was ancient, ancient land of Put. It was to the west of Egypt in the Babylonian Chronicle. And of course, Libya was under the rule of Muammar Gaddafi since 1969. It was just deposed and killed not long ago. And Libya is having all kinds of problems, and they're concerned it's going to become like a Somalia on the Mediterranean. A lot of chaos breaking loose there. But it's, a, it's an Islamic nation. Um, also, Kush is mentioned. Kush was the land of the south of Egypt, and Kush is the modern-day nation of Sudan which again is a radical um, Islamic nation. Osama bin Laden was harbored there in the late uh, 1990s. Um, some of the other nations that are mentioned, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Togarma, those are all, I believe, in modern-day Turkey. Now, I grew up with the old Schofield Bible, and Schofield had Meshach as Moscow and Tubal as Tobolsk. The problem with that is, when you read through the book of Ezekiel, Meshach and Tubal are mentioned together several times as trading partners with people in Lebanon. And I don't think people in Lebanon were trading with people all the way up in Siberia, you know, all the way up in Russia. 
So when you look back at these ancient people groups, it's a lot better to see them uh, in modern day uh, Turkey. And of course, Magog is uh, this area of Central Asia. 60 million Muslims live there. And then you've got Rosh, which is Russia, which is developing close ties with all these nations. And then you've got Persia, which became Iran in March of 1935, and then became the Islamic Republic of Iran um, in 1979. So you've got all these nations mentioned here, and three times in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it says they're going to come from the remote parts of the north, or the remotest parts of the north. Now, if you draw a line straight north from Israel and go as far, remote, as far, as far remote to the north as you can go, it's, it's Russia. So I think Russia will be a part of this as well. So I think what's going to happen is these nations are going to conspire together to come against Israel in the end times. And we see all of these Islamic nations today as nations that would love to come and to destroy Israel. And they're currently developing ties with one another. Now, one of the questions that gets raised, and some of you that maybe know a little bit more about prophecy may be familiar with this issue, is you'll notice on the map here, Ezekiel 38 and 39 kind of talks about the far enemies of Israel. You know, Iran, Russia, Central Asia, Turkey, and then far to the west and the south, Cush. But it doesn't mention the nations right around Israel. You know, like Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, uh, the Palestinians, and so on or Jordan. So a lot of people have, have come up with this idea, and, and Bill Salas has written on this quite a bit, that the uh, Psalm 83 mentions 10 nations, and that there's going to be a war before Ezekiel 38 and 39 involving the far enemies, where the near enemies of Israel are going to be destroyed. Now that could be. Also, though, if you'll notice in Ezekiel 38 verse 6, at the end of it, after kind of listing all these nations, he says, Gomer with all its troops, Bethlehem with all its troops, many peoples with you. So it could be that he just has mentioned here the far enemies, and he's saying, and there's going to be many peoples with you. In other words, it's going to include the ones inside of that as well. So either way, I'm, I'm not really sure you could be dogmatic either way. But at least here in Ezekiel 38, we have a coalition that involves Russia, Central Asia, uh, Turkey, Iran, the Sudan, and Libya. It's not too difficult to envision these nations wanting to come against Israel. Now, when is this invasion going to take place? When is this coming Middle East war going to happen? Well, there's four main views of the timing of this. One view is that it's in the past. Anybody here ever heard the word preterist before or preterism? Any of you all know, know what that word? Preterists believe that almost all the prophecies in the Bible have already been fulfilled. The word preter means past in Latin. So they take it that all these prophecies have been fulfilled. And they would say here in Ezekiel 38, they would say, look, this has already happened. Because it talks about shields and swords and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, how in the world are, are people in the end times going to be using that kind of stuff? And they say, you know, this has already happened in the past. The problem with that is it says this is going to happen in the latter years. Down uh, further on down in uh, Ezekiel in verse 16, it says it's going to happen in the last days that this is going to take place. 
Now, you say, well, how do you explain him using spears and swords and all that kind of stuff? Well, there's a couple ways to explain it. One is Ezekiel could have been just using language they were familiar with. I mean, obviously, he's just talking about implements of war. Just like he used the ancient names for these places, he could use ancient names for, uh, you know, uh, armed weapons that people use, but you just see the parallel to that in the end times, whatever they'll use. But there's another option here. It could be that people, when it gets to the end times, will be actually reverting to using these kind of weapons. Uh, that's actually the view Dr. Walvard held. Um, I ran across a quote a while back from Albert Einstein, and he said this. He said, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Kind of an interesting statement, isn't it? That could be what Ezekiel is describing. But either way, this invasion can't be passed because it's going to be in the latter years, the last days. Also, nothing even remotely similar to this has happened in Israel's past. So if it's going to be literally fulfilled, it can't have been fulfilled in the past. Um, some put this invasion before the tribulation period starts. And they go to, to Ezekiel 39.9, which talks about how they're going to burn the weapons for seven years. So they say, well, this invasion is going to happen, and these armies are going to be wiped out, and then they're going to burn the weapons for seven years, and that fits perfectly with the entire seven-year tribulation period. So that is a good argument. Uh, in fact, uh, the Left Behind books even put this Gog-Magog invasion before the, the rapture even comes. But the problem for me with that view is it says here that this is going to happen in the latter years. It's going to happen in the last days, which I believe is the time after the rapture during the tribulation period when God is dealing with Israel. Also, when you read on down in Ezekiel 38, it says when this invasion happens, Israel's going to be living at peace. They're going to be living securely. And I don't see how uh, before the rapture happens, Israel's going to be living at peace and living securely when this takes place. Other people put this invasion at the end of the tribulation. They say it's, just, it's the same thing as the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation. The problem here though again is Israel has to be at peace when this invasion occurs. And if there's one time in Israel's future when they won't be at peace, it's, in, uh, it's at the end of the tribulation period. And so I see these as two separate events. Now, like J. Vernon McGee used to say, let me give you the right view on this now, which obviously is my view. Uh, that's what he used to always say. My view is it's going to happen in the first half of the tribulation. If you go ahead and put that other slide up there for me now, the one that's uh, the chart. This is a great chart here. Anytime you see me with a chart that looks that good, I didn't make it. So this came from a, a very good book, by the way, I'd recommend. It's called Charting the End Times by Tommy Ice and Tim LaHaye. It's a great book. has a lot of beautiful charts in it, very accurate ones. But you'll notice in this chart, it's, uh, we're, in the, we're over here on the left-hand side, as I said earlier. We're in the current church age. We're in the time of the preparation for, for fulfillment. One of these days, the rapture is going to take place. The Lord is going to come, and those who've died, church-age believers, those who are in Christ, they're going to be caught up and uh, re receive their glorified immortal bodies, and the Lord will bring their spirits back with Him. The spirits have gone to be with the Lord. The bodies will be raised. They'll be rejoined. Those of us who are alive will be caught up at that time to be with the Lord, and the church age will end. Now, here's a very important point tonight. 
to remember, the rapture doesn't start the seven-year tribulation. The rapture ends the church age. You see, I think there's going to be probably a gap of time between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. And during that period of time, there will be what we call further preparation, more stage setting. Then at some point in time, the Antichrist is going to come and sign a peace treaty with Israel. And according to Daniel 9.27, that starts then the seven-year period. So that's what you see there on the chart, the start of the tribulation, that peace treaty. Now, I think it's during that first three and a half years of the tribulation when Israel is living at peace that uh, they're going to have this invasion take place. That's what I think is going to occur. It says in verse 8 of Ezekiel 38, they're living securely. Verse 8, they're at rest. Verse 11, uh, they're, or verse 11, they're at rest. They're living securely. The only two times in the future when we know that Israel is going to be living at peace and securely is, first of all, in the millennial kingdom, which, by the way, that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow night. But they're not going to get invaded during the millennium, right? So the only other time we know of from the Bible that Israel's going to be living at peace is the first half of the tribulation period when they're under that treaty with Antichrist. And so I think that's when this invasion is going to take place. Now, if I'm right about that, when this invasion occurs, all these Islamic armies are going to pour into Israel along with the army of Russia. And we won't take the time to read the, 30, uh, the end of the 38th and on into the 39th chapter tonight. But when these armies come against Israel, they're going to be wiped out. It's going to look like it's the end for Israel. But God is going to come and He's going to destroy these armies with fire and brimstone from heaven. You're going to destroy them with plagues, with infighting. They're going to start killing each other. They're going to be decimated. And if I'm right about the timing of that, whenever the armies of all these Islamic nations and Russia pour into Israel and they're all wiped out, that's going to create a huge power vacuum in the world. And that's what I think is going to set the stage then for the Antichrist to rule the world for that last three and a half years. Because I've always wondered in my own mind, you know, how's the Antichrist going to take the world over at that point in time? Something dramatic is going to have to happen. If all these armies have been destroyed, that's going to pave the way then for him to come in, I think, and to set up uh, this worldwide kingdom that he has. Now, why are these nations going to invade Israel? Well, it tells us in verse 12 that they're going to come in to capture spoil. They're going to come to capture spoil and seize plunder. So they're going to turn their hand against the waste places. They've gathered cattle and goods. They're at the center of the world. Now, people always used to wonder, why are people going to come against Israel? What are they going to get there? Well, they're a wealthy country. They have a lot of minerals and all that. Well, now they're discovering all this natural gas off the coast of Israel. I mean, massive reserves there in oil. And you wonder with Saudi Arabia pumping, you know, just like mad as they are and Iraq, all their uh, oils getting ready to come online. And if, if by the time these events happen, a lot of these under, other countries may almost be pumped dry. And it could be that Israel then with these vast reserves they have will be attractive. Uh, they're going to come also to crush Israel. Verse 9, you'll go up, you'll come like a storm, like a cloud covering the land. They're going to try to come in one final onslaught to get rid of the Jewish people. And I also think another reason these nations will attack Israel is to challenge the Antichrist. Because again, remember, during that first three and a half years, the Jewish people are going to have a peace treaty with the Antichrist. 
and he's going to probably guarantee their security. So all these Islamic countries in Russia, when they attack Israel, they're also really attacking the Antichrist at the same time, aren't they? So when they come in there and they're, they're wiped out, then that's when the Antichrist, I think, is going to see that as his signal that to come in and to take over. Now, one other thing, a couple other things I'll mention here is uh, what's going to happen when these nations come in? I've already mentioned this. They're going to be wiped out. But it's interesting in Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 38 and uh, verse um, 8, he talks here about the mountains of Israel. They've been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel. Did you know the mountains of Israel only became a part of modern Israel in 1967? The 1967 war, the mountains of Israel became part of Israel, of the modern state. So another piece of the puzzle is in place. And as we scan the horizon today, we can see the stage is being set for this invasion. I mean, the whole world today is focused on the Middle East. And, you know, some of you here who are a little bit older, people would have told you when you were growing up, the whole world's going to be focused on the Middle East. You'd have laughed at them. But here we see it today. The whole world is riveted there. And we see how events today are developing in our world that point toward uh, this war. Russia, you know, it looked like they'd gone by the wayside, but the Russian bear has come out of hibernation now. I mean, you know, Putin is back in power now. And uh, he's uh, really the new czar of Russia. He's meeting with the Iranian leader, uh, Ahmadinejad, uh, last week and this week, even as we speak. So these nations are developing ties with one another. Uh, Turkey is becoming uh, more and more radical uh, in their uh, Islam. In fact, uh, their leader in Turkey said this, democracy is like a streetcar. You ride it till you get to your destination and then you get off. So you kind of just use democracy for a while, but ultimately the hammer is going to be dropped uh, there in that nation. So we see these countries that are mentioned in the book of Ezekiel coming together. And of course, the most important one today is Iran. I mean, Iran is trying to cross the nuclear finish line. And Israel, if these talks that have been going on, and, and all Iran does is they, they, they talk and build. It's, it's the talk and build strategy. You keep talking, and the whole time you're building. And Ehud Barak, the leader of Israel, has said, look, there's a window of opportunity. And if we don't strike, they'll get those things so far underground and so hardened, the only way to take them out is going to be through nukes. In fact, some wonder if that's not already the case. Um, Israel has got um, uh, four submarines. They're getting a fifth one from Germany. They have nuclear weapons on these submarines. And some have wondered if, uh, you know, rather than having to fly planes in, to knock out these things. Israel may just shoot uh, missiles from submarines and take it out. But you know, who knows what's going to take place with all of that. But one of the nagging questions is how much longer can Israel wait uh, to do this? And again, no one knows the answer to that. But I think we can say this. If Israel were to take out the Iranian nuclear megaplex in the near future, this would plant seeds of such vitriolic hatred against the Jewish people that Iran and some of the other Muslim world couldn't wait to do what Ezekiel 38 says and to come against Israel at some point in the future. And that could be also the hooks in the jaws that could eventually pull Russia into this as well. Uh, general Jerry Boykin, who's a retired three-star general, in fact, I met him not long ago, was a very wonderful, friendly man. 
He said this, if Israel were to strike Iran, you would see it accelerate the relationship between Russia and Iran. I think Russia would then come to the aid of the Iranians. And I think you would see that relationship solidify with increased military cooperation and military support. The sale of additional military equipment and even military advice. And that sets the stage for ultimately what is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So when we look at our world today, we see a lot of the things that the Bible predicts falling into place. Now, that scares some people. Actually, that's comforting to me, because to me, what would really be bad is if you looked at this world and nothing fit in with anything that we could see anywhere. <laughs> to me, it's comforting to look and to say, you know what? The things the Bible says are going to take place in the end times, we can see the world moving that way. Uh, the, our world today bears a remarkable correspondence. It, it parallels what the Bible says. And that should give all of us a tremendous encouragement. Um, Israel has been regathered to their land, again, after 1,900 years of being scattered to 70 countries. We see this outcry in our world today. The world's clamoring for peace. What's the event that starts the seven-year tribulation period? It's an event where the Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel and probably with Israel's neighbors as well that brings peace there. Uh, we see the globalism. The world is continuing to come together. And the world is, is looking for someone who can come and, and save the world and its economy. We see all the nations of Ezekiel 38 are identifiable nations today with the will and the desire to attack Israel. They're forming alliances with one another. Um, on and on we can go. These are the things we see happening in our world today. To me, though, it's a comfort to know that God is in control. My favorite word in all the book of Revelation is uh, a name for God. And uh, it occurs eight times in the book of Revelation. And uh, you'll see it there translated in most translations. It's the word almighty. When you read the words, the Lord God almighty. And that word in Greek, that word almighty, is the word pantokrator. And I love that because the word pantos in Greek means everything. And the word krator or kratain means to hold in your hands or literally to have your hands on it. And so... Really, every time when you read in the book of Revelation, the Lord God Almighty. Almighty means God has everything in his hands. Or to translate it another way, God has his hands on everything. And when I look at this world today, if you just look at it from the, the horizontal perspective, it looks like it's chaos, doesn't it? I mean, people are afraid and they're fearful. But when we bring the vertical in, we realize that God is the Almighty and that He has His hands on everything. And if God can control all the movements of the nations, and he, in fact, He controls the, the heavens as well, but He controls all the nations and, and all of these great events on earth, it gives me great comfort that He can control the events of my puny little life as well. God has all that stuff under control. He has our lives under control as well. And that's a great comfort to me. You know, you can go to bed at night and with all the raging of the nations out there and maybe the, the problems we have in our own families or in our business or whatever it may be, we can put our head on the pillow at night and we can say, God, you're the Almighty. You're the Panocrator. You, you got your hands on everything. You control my life as well. 
And of course, the other thing to me that's encouraging about this as we look at it tonight is the rapture can happen at any time. The rapture can come at any time. When I'm out here in California, I always uh, mention to my wife, I'll say, well, I hope the big one doesn't happen while we're here, you know, down in San Francisco. She always hates me saying, I always say we're going over a bridge or something, you know, and I try to freak her out a little bit. But God may just let it happen one of these times that I'm doing that just to get me back for saying that. But, but I, I always think about that because, um, you know, when you think about the big one out here, of course, in, in Oklahoma, we have our tornadoes, you know, we have our problems there as well. But but when you think about the big one, everybody here knows it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen someday, but nobody knows when it's going to happen. It could happen at any moment. And it's the same way with the rapture. Everybody knows the rapture is going to take place, at least all Christians do, but no one knows the time. No one knows when it's going to take place. But we can already see the foreshadows of it today. We can already see the signs out there of the second coming of Christ. And it should cause us to believe that the coming of Christ uh, could be very near. And we know that only God knows the time, and Christ can come at any time. So my injunction would be we need to be ready all the time as God's people. And I would assume that most people that come out like this on a Sunday night to listen to a guy like me talk probably know the Lord. But I don't know any of you here personally. And I never like to leave any size of a group without giving someone the opportunity to trust Christ as their Savior. So maybe you came here tonight just, you know, kind of interested in these things or to come listen to what some uh, crazy prophecy uh, teacher is going to say. But my favorite verse in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Whenever you trust Christ as your Savior, God takes all your sins and He puts them on Jesus. But that's not the end of it. He takes all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and He credits it to your bank account in heaven. So that from that point on, God sees you not in your standing and your position as the sinner that you are, but He sees you through the eyes of the very righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. He takes all of the, the filthy uh, rags of our own righteousness and clothes us in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now that is the greatest transaction that could ever be imagined. I get all of His righteousness, and He takes all of my sin. And that happens in the moment when a person recognizes I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I believe Jesus is the Savior that I need. And you go to Him and cling to Him and take refuge in Him to be your Savior. And if you've never done that tonight, that's what you need to do. Well, that's what you need to do. Whether uh, the Lord comes in our lifetime or whether He doesn't come in your lifetime, the, all of us are going to face the Lord someday, either via the rapture or via death. And uh, like one of my old friends used to say, he says, I'm looking for the upper taker, not the undertaker. And I like that. <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's wonderful to know kind of God's timetable and to wonder and to know a little bit of what's going to happen to this world. But it's much more important that you know what's going to happen to you. That's the most important thing. Where are you going to spend uh, your eternity? And you can know that tonight if you'll put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. And so if you've never done that, you can do it right where you sit, right here this evening. You can take him to be your Savior. I love that verse in the Bible. It says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, God's made it as simple as it can possibly be. 
So if you've never done that, why not do that? And then for those of us who know the Lord, you know, every time you, you find prophecy mentioned in the scripture, there's always practical application with it. It always has some practical statement. Let me just mention a few of these and then we'll have our, our questions. But I always like to leave on a practical note. It helps me in my own life. Remember in John 14, what did Jesus say? He says, look, prophecy has a, a calming influence on stirred hearts. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. It's a lot in this world to get us stirred up. And Jesus said, look, don't let your hearts be stirred up and troubled in this world. I mean, in Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he talks all there about those who've died. And he says there at the end, when he talked about the rapture, he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. The rapture has a, a comforting influence on sorrowing hearts. We can stand there at the grave of a loved one and know we're not saying goodbye to them. We're just saying goodnight. We're going to see them again. Over in 1 Corinthians 15, after he's talked all there about the rapture and the coming of the Lord, what does he say in verse 58? Therefore, in other words, based on all I've said, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain. And then finally, over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, the rapture has a purifying effect on sinning hearts. He says, everyone who fixes his hope on him purifies himself as he himself is pure. So God wants to use us and the rapture is not some, uh, the coming of the Lord's not some pie in the sky and sweet by and by stuff. It's, it's for, for here and now, it helps us know how to live our lives now. Like one of my friends used to say, you know, there's the sweet by and by and there's the nasty now and now that we live in. And <laughs> Bible prophecy helps us live in the nasty uh, now and now. Thank you all. God bless you guys. Thank you all.